You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from John chapter 11, verses 55 through chapter 12, verses 19. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Your testimonies, Lord, are wonderful. Our souls seek to keep them. We want to keep them, Lord. The unfolding of your words give life and light. And they impart understanding to the simple as we just sang. Lord, we open our mouths and we pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady our steps, we pray, according to your promises that we see in your word. And let no iniquity get dominion over us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what is the statute of limitations on spoilers? Because 
we are way behind when it comes to pop culture and entertainment. I don't know why I'm doing this. But have you seen The Greatest Showman? So I know some of you, many of you, you got to be careful. Your eyes might roll right out of your head onto the floor, Caleb and Drew and Ben and maybe even Joanna. Joanna was into it, but she's just heard way too much from me about it. It's an inaccurate telling of P.T. Barnum's establishment of the circus. He was much less honorable than the movie depicts. We get it. Those voices weren't real that were singing. They were robots. We get it. Auto-tuned, historically revised, hip-hoppity, old-time circus thing that was historically impossible. But it sure was fun, wasn't it? Sure, they distorted everything they could distort to capture my heart. But they did it, and they did it well, and I'm glad they did it. It was fun. So much fun, apparently, that they had sing-alongs. Kara Ray told me they had sing-alongs in theaters. And people went to them. And Hugh Jackman got caught trying to sneak into one. He wants to sing these joyful tunes with the common people. And I'll be honest, this, like, bit of joy and jealousy sort of crashed in on my heart when I heard about that. And when I realized those are long gone out of theaters. And that if we're going to do it, we're going to have to do it as a GC soon, right, the race? Of course, movies never tell us the absolute truth about what should be repented of, from, and what should be repented back to. But there's something about complete strangers being willing to meet up in a big room and retell each other and sing all about a story of repentance and a changed, transformed life. We call it church. They call it entertainment. Friends, we as Christians, we are called to something even higher, to higher joys. It's hard to believe, though, sometimes because they sure seem happy. You should see the behind the scenes stuff. It's really fun. But we as Christians, we're called to not replace one idol of popularity and money with another idol of family, as good as that is, for people to turn to and value, we're called to reject all of our earthly idols. Reject anything that threatens to be of higher treasure in our hearts than Jesus Christ, our eternal King. We're going to see some of that in our text this evening. I'm going to give you five short phrases to hang your thoughts on as we move through the text this evening. First, Jesus hided. If you're going to break grammar rules, you've got to break them boldly and poetically. I learned that from Shakespeare and Patrick Gozier. Number two, so Jesus hided. Number two, Mary was derided, which means she was ridiculed, but it rhymes with hided. Number three, the crowd's praise was misguided. Number four, Jesus' kingdom coincided. And number five, the Pharisees chided. They scolded each other. We'll see why. So number one, Jesus hided or hid, if you prefer. Last week, Jesus did the impossible once again. The seventh of his seven major signs that John 
tells us about in his accounting of the gospel. He raised a dead man back to life. What an impact did that have on your week to remember such truth? And as we've been moving through John, we've seen Jesus over and again piercing into the darkness of sin, the fall, the curse, its effects on mankind with life-giving light. He's piercing in on it. And his disciples, they claim they'll follow him no matter what. Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. The crowds, they're fickle. But they seem to be coming around. Again, we'll see about that. The Jewish leaders, they're committed to kill him and snuff out his influence. We'll see about that. Jesus has just proven himself to be the great governor of life and death. And the Jewish leaders see their power and influence and control coming to an end over the people, over their hearts, as their hearts are turning toward Jesus as their true leader. And if you look back at the very last few uh, verses from last week, so if you look down your Bible there, verse uh, 53 of chapter 11, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Do you blame him? Do you blame Jesus for going into hiding a bit here? He's a marked man. He could just ride off into the messianic retirement sunset and be like, I did it. I'm the bomb. They think it. They believe it. I can just go hide and start the insurgency. And here we go. I'll be the bin Laden of my day. Until it catches up with him, I guess. Part of me wants to cry out at this point when we read this. Jesus, just stay hidden. Let this whole thing blow over already. Regroup, reevaluate, re-strategize. Not, you're going to go down. It's not going to end well. But a true and noble, especially eternal king, he doesn't hide. You see, Jesus isn't in the line of King Saul, the first king the Israelites had. What did he do when it was time to be king? He hid. He hid in the luggage. They were announcing him as king, and they find him hiding among the luggage. And what happened when Goliath was threatening God's people and mocking the one true God, he hid behind the front lines. He didn't go out to defend God's people, defend God's name. He yielded to a mere boy, a shepherd boy, King David. And guess what? Jesus is of that lineage, King David's lineage. And so Jesus, though he hides, he doesn't hide long. He steps out of hiding to rescue his people, to destroy his enemies, their enemy, once and for all, he's not just coming back to win a mere battle like David did. He's here to win the war once and for all. And what better time to come to the rescue when his people are crying out the most and feel oppressed than at Passover? The time when they are remembering their liberation from Egypt and their bondage to human slavery. In Jesus' perfectly orchestrated timing. The people of the country all headed to Jerusalem. They're on their way to worship God. They're on their way to remember his saving power, his might, his love, his care, his showing up of Pharaoh. They long to be clean before God. They're required to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean before God. They long to remember 
his power that broke them from the bondage of slavery. But they don't know. They don't know as they approach and as they celebrate Passover another time. They don't know that the bondage of sin and death, it still remains on them and it hasn't been solved yet. It needs to be undone and it needs to be undone forever and Jesus knows this. Now in order to celebrate the Passover, each family had to look out in the flock, either purchase or those that they were raising. They had to find that spotless lamb. They had to cut that spotless lamb. They had to take its blood and remember the time generations ago where they painted it over their doorposts and God's own spirit saw that blood of the perfect lamb and passed over their home, saving them from his wrath and taking it out on their enemy that held them in bondage. Yet they need more. They need more than this. They need more than just something to tell their kids about what happened in the past. They don't just need to look back and, 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 and cut lambs now. They need something for the future. They need a forever lamb. They need the greater lamb's blood shed to remove God's punishment so that he might pass over them. They don't realize it. We don't realize it, that we deserve it as much as Pharaoh did. And yet by faith, God's punishment can pass over us if the blood of the lamb is on us. And who are these people looking for in our, in our text today? Are they looking for their lamb? Well, they're not talking about lambs. They're looking for Jesus. Where is he? Is he going to come to the feast? You wonder, did John the Baptist's words pop into their heads? Didn't he call him the lamb of God? Aren't I supposed to be looking for a lamb? Jesus is the lamb that they should be looking for. The one who can truly meet their eternal need the one who can bring them to God, not just remind them of what happened in the past, but bring them out of slavery forever. Jesus is the one. They want him all right. They want to know. They're curious enough, but they don't know why. They're not connecting it, at least not yet. And the Pharisees, they've given orders, right? They've given orders to turn Jesus in. If anyone sees him, you turn him in. A lot of people just want to see him. He raised a man to life recently. We want to see this guy. But they also know and they've heard that anyone who sees him must turn him in. So he's wanted for good. He's wanted for ill. Everyone knows it. He's a wanted man. Like the lambs in the homes across Jerusalem, Jesus' days are numbered. But again, no one's making the connection. The Pharisees, they even want to kill Lazarus because as long as there is breath in Lazarus' lungs, then belief is spreading and loyalty is lost to them and their earthly human power. And before Jesus goes completely public, he returns to Bethany. He shares a meal and he teaches his disciples a lesson. This is where we see Mary derided in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. If you want to look at that with me. So he returns. Jesus returns to this hotbed of curiosity, belief, opposition. This is where he raised a man to life recently. Everyone's looking for him there too. And out of the blue, Mary interrupts the dinner party with a perfume bath, essentially, for Jesus. 
fully clothed. This stuff was bright red and it was really strong, flowery smells from India. And it cost a whole year's worth of labor wages to purchase. And she either found it on her shelf, perhaps an inheritance from a rich uncle or something, or she went out and bought it. Either way, a cherished thing that could be used for a number of reasons across an entire life. I kind of empathize with the disciples here. And it wasn't just Judas. Judas gets a bad rap, justifiably so. But in Mark's accounting of this exact same event, he says some of the disciples... And they were rebuking her for doing it. So Judas isn't alone in this. So let's give him just a slight break. He's going to fall off the map soon. So I kind of empathize with this. Not with the stealing part. We shouldn't be stealing from the coffers that have been donated by others or raised or, or given and, 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 and are being used to support the ministry of Jesus and, and, and the support of all those following him and helping him in the ministry. We don't empathize with the stealing of that money. But a whole year's worth of wages? In today's American economy, it'd be like me grabbing $30 of a thousand dollar, 30 bottles of a thousand dollar a bottle wine and dumping it on Nathan's head. I mean, I love Nathan, but I'm not about to do that. A whole year's worth of income. Mary. Poor people are suffering every day. We've seen them. We've helped them. Do you know what could have been done with that perfume, that nard for the Lord? Mary's thinking, she's thinking, I actually did this for the Lord. No, you wasted it. She's thinking, any other use for such a valuable thing on anything else that's less valuable, that would have been wasting it. Mary is showing us here a deep worship and devotional abandon to the one who just brought her brother back to life. The one who holds in his hands the very keys to life. What is one year's worth of working compared to showing him how much I love him and I'm willing to waste on him? Jesus is more valuable than any earthly treasure, friends. Any earthly treasure, be it people or product, Jesus is more valuable than it. Mary here literally let down her hair. It was against the customs of purity, against even the priority of social justice for the poor, as we already saw. And does this story not speak to two fairly significant problems we have in Christianity and that we are probably tempted by often as Christians? On the one hand, the ultra-conservative, ultra the fundamentalist who, who, who does every rule you can imagine God ever giving us, even those that man makes up in the name of God. No matter what, no matter where, no matter when, I'm on it. We love to point it out when others don't line up with our prioritization of external signs of Christianity. 
Church doors are open. I'm there. I'm not here just to, I'm not here to build people up. I'm here to point out how they're falling short, cast judgment on their lack of zeal. If someone is in violation of these religious norms, we're the first ones to point it out. Not for the sake of that person's walk with the Lord or the manifestation of true love toward the Lord, no. But for the external hope of religious showmanship. Of course we want purity among God's people. Of course we do. And, and, and for Mary, you weren't supposed to put your hair down unless your husband was around. And he was the only one, right? At least in the culture of the day. But don't we want more than that undignified delight, undignified devotion to Jesus? That's what Mary's offering here. As one commentator put it, women do not let their hair down in public. The only one who saw a woman's hair was her husband. Mary is acting with extravagant abandon, hoping that the close circle of friends will understand because of the one sitting, actually reclining at the dinner table in front of her. Jesus has won Mary's heart, and now nothing, nothing, even her greatest treasure perhaps on this earth, can compare to the value of the person sitting in front of her And she's learned this truth through the death and resurrection of her brother. She's learned that blessing comes through brokenness, not just in the avoiding of brokenness. And this is a foretaste, a foretaste of Jesus' brokenness on the cross to which all mankind will be blessed forever if they would only repent and believe. The other, uh, perhaps, error in the church that we're tempted to on the other end of the scale is um, when we as Christians look primarily to the relief of worldly, horizontal suffering as the primary mission of Jesus and his people. If the conservative, ultra-conservative Christian is tempted to replace devotion to the person of Jesus with religious piety, then the liberal Christian is tempted to replace personal devotion with this mission of social justice. Guys, of course we want suffering to be relieved. Of course we want wrongs to be made right for those who are living in bad and broken situations. Of course we want that. But we must remember that the outflow of love horizontally can never ever replace or even compare to the source of that love. It must flow out from our love that is vertical, and that is established primarily by Jesus in the gospel, by winning us back to God. When he shows us that love, we believe he loves us, he saves us utterly, then we want to go out. And in the name of Jesus, in the hope that they will be reconciled to Jesus, we want to help them. There is a priority there. Sometimes those lines can get blurred too much. And far too often, maybe we don't want to line our literal pockets with coins from sold perfume, but we want to line our spiritual pockets on both ends of that scale. Sometimes, though, we're all about helping people. We're all about relieving, over there on the left side, we're all about relieving suffering, and we don't give a second thought to the gospel. We don't give a second thought to 
our own personal devotion. Maybe on either side here, we don't give a second thought to our Bible reading. She wasted a year's worth. I mean, you can translate that into time. She spent a year on Jesus in a matter of seconds. When's the last time you spent more than a matter of minutes with Jesus on purpose, reading his word, praying to him? Guys, this hits me hard. I, I feel like a soldier for Christ. I confess often to the elders in our accountability times. You guys have those sheets sometimes that you look at for discipleship groups and you run through them and you mark up some stuff and hopefully you're talking about those things in your accountability. We have to like give a scale of one for five on all the questions, right? And I consistently have low numbers on just personal devotion to Jesus as my friend. Like, you're my general Jesus. I'm here for you. I'm going to talk to your people. I'm going to get them stoked on you. I'm going to uh, send them to other nations where it's dangerous. You, you want me to like sit for a while and listen to your word and, and pray about all these things? Just me and you for like a half hour? I feel so unproductive sometimes. So I just skip it. This has impacts on our praise too. It's impacted my praise. The crowd's praise, my praise, the crowd's praise is misguided often. This is uh, verse 9 through 13. The crowd here has gathered because they've heard about this Jesus. His signs, especially this raising of Lazarus, the greatest one. What a glorious parade, right? What an entrance. Jesus is the greatest showman now. He'll be this great king. He'll undo all that oppresses us. He'll defeat Rome. All those stories we hear about Israel stretching far and wide. That'll happen for us. Let's grab those palm branches. Never mind the Old Testament that told us to grab the palm branches from the Feast of Booths and, 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 and worship with them. No. Remember when the Maccabees, so we're talking intertestamental time between the Old Testament and New Testament. Dude, these palm branches went political. It went nationalistic. What they're waving here is not Jesus save us from our sins. I mean, I walked in, right, when I was a kid waving palms on Palm Sunday. But if you... Look at the text really close. Maybe even put your ear up next to the text. You might even hear them saying, make Israel great again. Make Israel great again. They're ready. They're ready to vote him in as king. Because that power he displayed in raising Lazarus, bring it on, Rome. Kill us all. He'll raise us back to life. We'll fight you to the death again. That's the kind of king we need to take over. But if, if Jesus does become their political king, the Pharisees are tripping, right? They see it all going downhill. The church and state are in bed with one another here. There's puppet kings ruling so that powerful spiritual leaders can control the people and their resources. Their spiritual condition is not the priority. And the crowd is missing the point. Jesus is not there to fight their physical battles. It's not what he came for. Peter misunderstands this right up, in the time, up until the time when Jesus gets arrested, chopping off an ear. 
right? You live by the sword, you die by the sword, Jesus said. No, he's not here to win a battle, a physical battle. He's here to win a spiritual war by dying for their sins. They're looking for an earthly king, but God is providing a heavenly lamb. What about you? Is Christianity, is, is Christ good for you as long as they support your preferred political position and the implications of it, the postures perhaps you've come to see as good and best for the people of this country, maybe even the world, they'd all just get it right? Is your devotion and praise to Jesus set on your own terms, your party's terms, your roommate's terms, co-worker's terms? Have you fallen into the rut of mere political Christianity or even a falsely devoted Christianity? Jesus' kingdom will not line up with our natural affinities for what he is to be as our king. That's because his true kingdom coincides with our true need that we are far too often unsensitive to. So number four, Jesus' kingdom does coincide. It coincided with their need. Verses 14 through 16. If Jesus really wanted to hype up the crowd, he really wanted to win in a landslide, then a war horse would have been his choice of steed that day. But instead, he chooses a young donkey to ride in, to ride in on. And he's doing this on purpose. He's, he's, he's dampening their nationalistic expectations. And if you're tracking with the Bible reading plan, then we're in Isaiah, like Matt said earlier. And in Isaiah 31, hopefully you saw that this week. If not, go there, read through that whole text. And then just drop the whole reading plan behind you and start where we're at now. Here's what Isaiah 31 says. Woe to those of you. This context. Uh, Israel has, uh, Israel and Judah have the Assyrians bearing down on them. They're being threatened with uh, uh, exile. It's not going well. These kings are just bad after bad after bad. And God's like, I'm done. You're out of here. Isaiah says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and they rely on horses because they're tempted to, 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 to make a treaty with Egypt and come help fight the Assyrians away from us. Who, those who trust, woe to those who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult with the Lord. That speaks volumes to us as Americans, Right? I mean, war? Wars are what happen in other countries. Wars are what we win fairly easily. Okay, so this new form of war is a little trickier for our guys. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We don't feel insecure. Oh, so he's going to lob them over the ocean? Well, that's going away in the news right now. The lobbying of intercontinental ballistic missiles. If we're going to be God's people, though, We can't just put our trust in the superpower called America and our military and our economy, both of which seem to be untouchable sometimes. If we're going to be God's people, if we're going to relate to God's people around the world, we've got to push back and, 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 and sift through these false hopes and false senses of security in our government and in our way of life. Because here's the, here's the deal. We could be on the right side, the quote-unquote right side 
of all of these things and on the wrong side of God's favor forever. What a grave mistake that would be. And what a grave mistake it is for us to let our neighbors continue in it too. We could make personal safety and, 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 and country prosperity our God for 70 years while we're here. 80 years, 90 years if you're lucky. And then we could face eternal opposition from our God. And without repentance and faith in the true king and, 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 and in, his, in his true kingdom, that's where we're headed. If we're honest with ourselves, like the Israelites here, we're quick to find the problems in our society, in our work, in our school, and in our family outside of ourselves instead of inside of ourselves. And Jesus came to bring victory over the enemy inside ourselves. He came to bring peace, destroying his greatest enemy, not with a bow, not with a sword. If everyone in Israel is looking for a lamb to slaughter, to remember God's saving power, Greg Thornberry says, when Jesus rode in on the donkey, it's as if he was saying, pick me, pick me. Behold, your king is coming. This is from Zechariah 9. That little quote there. In John 12, it's from Zechariah 9. Look at the greater context here. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the Lord takes over. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. So what kind of king is Jesus? Has he come to defeat Rome? Has he come to destroy all nations? Lift Israel up? As the once powerful kingdom they were? No. Jesus has come to bring his kind of kingdom. He's come to make peace with his people and then through his people make peace with all peoples. Jesus is not here to fight Rome, guys. He's here to save Rome. He's here to win Rome back to himself. He's here to establish peace, not just nation to nation, but a peace between his people and himself. Guys, you don't need swords. You don't need your bows. Put them down. Let me snap those things in half. We need donkeys here. I need a cross. Do you believe that Christ has won that kind of war? Do you see his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead as the ultimate establishment of his rule over every soul that repents and believes in it for salvation? Or are you only praising him when he does what you want him to do, when he makes life feel good? At the end of our passage here, the Pharisees just like they did accidentally in our text last week when they said, 
better for one man to die than the whole nation. And we're sitting there like, did you just preach us the gospel? Because that's the gospel that we know and put our hope in. Just like that, they speak bold-faced truth accidentally, we would say providentially, by saying in verse 17, you see, you're gaining nothing. They're fighting amongst each other, chiding one another. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world is coming after him more than they could ever imagine meaning. As we'll see in the next few weeks, Gentiles, non-Jews, they're getting curious about who this Jesus is and what this power is. And that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Once he dies, once he comes back to life, once his scared disciples see that he is who he said he was and his kingdom is what he said it would be, they're willing to die to get this message to every tribe, every language, every people on earth. And look, here you are sitting here on wooden pews. And your lineage is from many different nations, many different tribes, many different peoples. And there are many yet that have not heard. The world is coming after him. And they will come after him. John, same guy that wrote this book, wrote Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And Jesus gave him a vision many, many years after Christ died and came back to life. And after John himself had seen the gospel go to Asia and to Europe. And listen to the vision he gave John. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from, every, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to who? To the lamb. No, no, no. Jesus did not come here to win political victories for the Jewish people or for us. He came to win our hearts. He came to win the hearts of people from all over the world, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He wants worship to come to him. He wants the hearts of the people around the world to cherish him, to cherish his son like Mary cherished his son. He wants to see around the world a valuing of Jesus above all earthly treasures like we saw in Mary. A guy named Brian Sternberg, he broke the world record in pole vaulting in 1963. And, and five weeks later, he was doing somersaults on a trampoline, training. He was doing a double back somersault with a twist. It's not that hard. He had done it dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of times. And yet, one slip, one land on his neck, paraplegic for life. After a season of bitterness against God, he repented, put his trust in Jesus, put Jesus at the, begin, at the center of his life. He says this, or he said this, my friends, I pray the to God that, that what has happened to me will never happen to any one of you. I pray that you will never know the humiliation, the shame of not being able to perform even one human act. It's my hope and my prayer that what has happened to me would never happen to any one of you unless, my friends, that's what it takes for you to put God in the very center of your life. 
You see, P.T. Barnum in the movie, he lost everything. He lost all his money. He lost the show. He lost his fame. So he repents to what? His family? Replacing one idol with the next? Brian here, he lost everything. True repentance. Mary lost her brother. It was restored. And yet she got something about blessing through brokenness. The crowd, they're losing their hopeful aspirations of a political leader. The Pharisees, they're losing all control of what's going on. What do you think it is that you would either have to lose by accident or voluntarily to reorient the value of your life on Jesus? Because folks, the things we do and the things we think about and the way we say things and the things we say, they show very clearly what we value. And it so often is just plain us. It's just plain me. My tone shows you that it's me I love. What I spend my time doing shows everyone what I love. Friends, press in to Jesus. May God turn our hearts. May he turn our hearts and the hearts of many throughout the world to know him, to know the good news of his gospel, to know the value of Jesus Christ, to know him sacrificially and to make him known to everyone around us for the valuable savior he is. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Father, we know that too often we neglect you, our king, for the sake of your kingdom even. Jesus, we mistake you for an earthly king meant to bring us comfort, security, prosperity here temporarily instead of hope and love and sacrificial mission to spread that cherishing of Jesus throughout our city and throughout the world. Help us not to skip over the cherishing part. Help us not just move through the motions religiously, Lord. Help us to cherish Jesus with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. Help us to do all things for his glory. Help us to do all things as unto the Lord, not as unto men. Help us to value what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Lord, help us to see how valuable Jesus is like you see how valuable Jesus is. And Lord, may that love flow through our souls more and control our minds more and control our words more and control our families more, control our church more and win our city more in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq dot com